Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 65, I think. Yes, episode 65. And let's just get right to it. Do you guys are you guys voting for us in this award thing? I feel so embarrassed for the love of God, because we've been please. tweeting so much about it, and if we don't win, that's just like really embarrassing. I mean, if we do win, I thought about that too. Yeah, if because <laughs> I was thinking like I have pissed off all of my followers that don't care about Let's Get Haunted. You know, like they just yes. don't care about this. So I'm sure they've like unfollowed or muted because I've been like just nonstop talking about the shit they don't care about. So, like, I, you guys, right. I literally have thrown away, like, probably 60% of my clout for this stupid fucking whale award so Alyssa can have it <laughs> and be happy <laughs> about it. I I wish that I didn't notice when people unfollow us on Twitter, but I, I do. And <laughs> we have absolutely lost some followers from this. But you know what, you guys? If we win this whaley house award (laughs) we can take a picture with it we can put it on our resumes we can put it in our media kit like this could mean something what that is we we're not sure yet but we really want it so if you are from the shorty awards and you're listening to this alternatively if you're from the webby awards and you're listening to this we will fucking shout out your award show so hard if you let us win so please (laughs) i know i'm gonna please let us win please and yes okay so if you haven't already voted for us um you can vote every single day and that's like a requirement we we say you can vote every single day we really mean you must vote every single day if you're listening to this this episode goes live 6 a.m. on the 31st, which is a Wednesday. That is the last day that you can vote for us in the Shorty Awards. So if you're listening to this, it is imperative that you go to our Instagram at Let's Get Haunted. You click the link in our bio. Mm-hmm. You do whatever you have to do to vote. Then when you vote, there's a pop up that shows up on the screen and it'll tell you that you can tweet about it for an extra vote. Do that. Please do that. And I will see it because I am constantly on the Twitter account because I really want this award and I will retweet it. We like and retweet every single one of them. So we're not going to leave you hanging. You're not going to be just like tweeting into a void about some stupid podcast no one knows about, about an award no one cares about. You'll have at least two hearts from me and Let's Get Haunted and and Alyssa. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And you know what? I understand because I also have a personal Twitter account. And I know that sometimes you tweet something and the tweet just doesn't hit and nobody <laughs> likes it. And then you're kind of embarrassed and then you got to wait a certain amount of minutes before you delete it. Right. So <laughs> just know that that won't happen to you in this case because me, Natalia, and the ghost that runs our Let's Get Haunted Twitter account, we are all here for you and we will like we will retweet. We will gas you up. If I have time, I'll leave a comment. Um, sometimes I'm at work. And so I just like get a notification on my phone that's like somebody tweeted at Let's Get Haunted. And I'm just like, quick, retweet and like. So actually, I may have retweeted someone talking shit before. I don't know, because at this point, I'm just a retweeting machine because I want this award. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And also in the and to mention Twitter, I want to say I before the last episode about the Fabergé eggs, I tweeted out something like, 
I have a, a episode hint if anyone wants to guess what the next episode's going to be about. And I did like the a Russian flag emoji and then a chick being hatched emoji. And someone got it. They were like, oh, Fabergé eggs. Yeah, it was Phil. Yeah. And so I wanted to shout out Phil and say, hey, Phil, like, what? Why? Why? <laughs> why did you know that? <laughs> and thank you. Also, Phil sent us an, an amazing, an amazing <laughs> hype song that I just want to play for one second so everyone can hear it. Now, apparently, I I had never seen this video before, so I asked Phil for the context. I guess this is, like, Donald Trump's personal preacher did, like, a crazy speaking in tongues prayer session for him the night of the election, and then someone remixed it with Eminem's uh, Guess Who's Back and then, like, a cat bobbing its head. So Phil tweeted, calling in some backup to cement your victory for the shorting awards, and then it's just this hype video. Here goes, guys. this cat bobbing its head and then this woman like victory 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 and i'm just so hyped up like i literally like get chills all over my body if that could be my alarm for every day like i feel like i would just wake up and take over the world (laughs) you want to know what else got us really amped is at initial response made a video of himself ripping a deck of cards in half with his bare hands he's outdoors in the snow He's wearing an insane mask, like Halloween mask, yes. so you can't see what he looks like. And it's it got Natalia so amped beyond <laughs> belief. So initial yeah, response, guys, if you're listening to this, thank you. You guys have been getting me amped as fuck. And yeah, so if you don't know what we're talking about, last, first of all, no time to explain, obviously, but last episode, <laughs> there was talk about whether or not someone could actually rip a deck of cards in half with their hands. And... We, I didn't expect anyone to be able to do it. I said, if you could do it, like just film it and send it to us. And then someone did it. Let's thank our donors. I would like to thank Kate K, Harvey A, Femi H, Kathleen O, Brielle S, Sam H, Pascal S, Jonna H, Maya L, Camden S, Scott V, and Riffy S for donating this week. Thank you guys so much. And I would like to thank James in Durham, North Carolina, Tom L., Ash, Omar C., Sky T., Morgan G., Perry I., Courtney B., Maria O., Dougie H., Nick Cage. Somebody made a Kofi account that is the photo of Nick Cage, and it says, good job, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Alec and Joey from Wisco, who said they really liked your Fabergé egg episode. Oh, wow. Chesney. Scott V, Audra T, Gianna G, Lily C, Maya L, and Jonna 
H. And I just want to say that I am uh, on my period. This might be TMI, but some of the messages you guys have written us on Kofi have legitimately made me cry today because I was going through them to like write out the list to read off this episode. And I have just been very emotional because I'm on my period and people say like really fucking nice things mm. on there. So thank you very much. Thank you guys. Oh, wait. Nut. Oh, is the nut button not working? Nut. There it went. Okay. Oh, there we go. Thank nut. God. Yeah, thank God. Nut. Okay, Natalia, are you ready for today's episode? You bet I am. Well, this episode, it starts out kind of gross, and then it gets kind of silly, and then um, everything's fine. So I Get just want to prepare you. I'm like okay. totally gassed up. I, I keep thinking about that song that was like, and strike, and strike, and strike, and victory, victory, <laughs> victory, victory. Victory, so, victory, right. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't like this episode, just picture that song playing in the background, you guys, and get pumped up anyway. Yes. Okay. So, Natalia, we have discussed the topic of human cannibalism in a couple of different episodes on this podcast. Can you name any of those episodes where that topic came up? Yes, the HMS terror episode. And also there was um, the the uh, plane that crashed, the Andes flight disaster. Yes. So those are some examples of episodes that where we've kind of touched upon this topic before, but we've never really done a deep dive on human cannibalism. And in the stories where we have talked about it, it's always been uh, something that happens in a time of struggle or an emergency situation or as a last resort, right? Right. Yeah, it's not for fun. No, it's not for fun. Exactly. And so we rarely hear stories about people just eating each other for shits and giggles. Well, in today's story, I am going to tell you a popular Scottish legend involving human cannibalism that was indeed just for shits and giggles. What? But before we get into that, I wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive into cannibalism itself, since, like I just said, we've never really done that before. So, buckle the fuck up. If you're listening to this right now, as we have said for a couple of episodes now, please put on your robe, get in your closet... And then push play on this episode. L I'm ready. So by definition, human cannibalism is the act or practice of humans eating the flesh or internal organs of other human beings. A person who practices cannibalism is called a cannibal. Now, the word itself comes from Spanish legends recorded in the 17th century regarding the customs of the Kalinago people on the island Carib. In the early colonial period, the Kalinago had a reputation as warriors who raided neighboring islands and regularly ate roasted human flesh of those they killed. In the language of the Carib people, the word caribna means person and became the origin of the English word cannibal. There is evidence of the Caribs taking human trophies and participating in ritual cannibalism of war captives, but modern historians think that the extent of cannibalism was greatly exaggerated by the Spanish explorers who witnessed it. For example, the Caribs had a tradition of keeping the bones of their ancestors in their homes since it was thought that doing so would ensure that the ancestral spirits would watch over and protect them, and some explorers saw these bones and assumed that they were the remains of people who had been eaten, but that wasn't true. Other examples of human cannibalism range from New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Fiji, the Amazon Basin, the Congo, ancient Egypt, Roman Egypt, and even some examples dating back to the ancient Neanderthals. Flesh markets, or markets where cuts of human meat were sold, even existed in places like Melanesia well into the 1900s. 
1910, author A.P. Rice wrote of his experience living among the cannibals in New Caledonia, writing in his book The American Antiquarian, quote, Here the women of the tribe used to pick out the best-covered corpses on the field of battle and dress them for the ovens while the warriors were still engaged in killing others. Heated stones were thrown into makeshift ovens on the very fringe of the battlefield so that there need not be a delay in feasting once the victory was won. In New Caledonia, it was the hands that were considered the choicest portions, and these by prescriptive right became the portion of the tribal priests. These would follow the warriors and the women of the warring tribe and take up positions in the rear of the battle. So important was it to them that they and they alone should be given the hands of their enemies slain in battle that they would actually fast rather than accept anything inferior. On this island, too, there was no prohibition against women partaking of human flesh, nor was there any taboo against the eating of the corpse of a chief. On the other hand, if the corpse of a chief was an offer, it was obligatory that every man, woman, and even small child must receive at least a mouthful. Another important taboo on this island concerned the corpses of women. If by any chance the body of a woman happened to be included in the feast, then however far demand exceeded supply, the torso must be cast away and only the arms and legs divided into portions. In 1922, author Martin Johnson wrote the following in his book Cannibal Land regarding the Malakula region of Melanesia. Quote, For an hour we watched and took long-range photos. The dance continued monotonously. The meat sizzled slowly over the fire, and nothing happened. Then I gave one of the boys a random flare and told him to go into the clearing, drop the flare into the fire, and run to one side out of the picture. He did as I asked him. He threw the flare into the fire and jumped aside. The flare took fire and sent its blinding white light into their faces. With a yell, they sprang back and ran in. My boys sprang into the clearing. I, with my camera on my shoulder, was just behind them. When I came up to them, they were standing by the fire, looking at the only remnant of the feast that was left on the embers. It was a charred human head with rolled leaves plugging the eye sockets. Oh I had proved what I had set out to prove, that cannibalism is still practiced in the South Seas. I was so happy that I yelled. Wow. Yeah. Basically, what I want to say about this one, I don't know, like... This guy is stoked that he got to take a picture of a human head on a grill. And I just feel like that's weird. Yeah, it is. I don't I don't know what to say about this because part of me is like obviously grossed out by this because in my culture, we don't eat human flesh. And, I, you know, we I don't even I get grossed out when I see the whole fish on the plate. Like, I know that's super normal and in, in Europe and other places, like pretty much everywhere, even some places in the United States, if we go to a fancy restaurant and you order the fish. They'll like give you the entire fish with like the eyes and everything laying on its side. Right. I don't like it for a number of reasons. Number one. Let me just go on to my rant really quick about this. I fucking hate this because there's always bones in it. Like, and then the right. bones get stuck up in my gums and now I have an injury based off of the way that this fish was prepared. <laughs> and number two, I don't want to be reminded of things were alive and now they're dead, you know? And so, right. like we've talked about in this podcast before that Americans and North Americans in general are like pretty uncomfortable with death. And I definitely feel that way. 
all that's why this makes me the story makes me even more uncomfortable because it's like human flesh eating yeah like this i'm this is not i'm not about this life but at the same time this is another culture right and i'm trying to like be respectful of that but i just have so many questions i can't really form an opinion until i hear more basically is what i'm saying yeah <laughs> well and and what you're saying i think you're right on the money because as i was researching this topic the uh philosophical and psychological argument of like whether or not it's immoral to eat another human or whether or not it's bad in like unhealthy to eat another human that comes up a lot and the topic is still being hotly debated so I think that all the feelings you're having are very normal because it seems like a lot of really smart scholars feel the same way I'm just not sure if it's consensual then I feel like it's fine right like if if this person whose head was grilled with the leaves coming out of their eyes was like, hey, go ahead and eat me. I would like for that to happen. And then they did it. <laughs> then I feel like it's fine. But for something, for some reason, I feel like it's not consensual. Maybe because you started off with a bunch of stories about like war and people eating the bodies of their victims. So I'm just like already in that mindset. But yeah, so that's how I feel about it right now. <laughs> Well, although most popular examples of cannibalism come from remote jungles or ancient cultures or warring tribes, like you kind of just said, yeah. it is important to note that the consumption of human flesh and internal organs is not exclusive to any one region on Earth. A form of cannibalism popular in early modern Europe, for example, was the consumption of body parts or blood for medical purposes. In fact, it is ironic that the Spanish and Italian explorers used cannibalism as an excuse to justify enslaving Native populations when their own cultural history was just as dark. As we learned in episode 63, The Belmez Faces and Other Andalusian Hauntings, the practice of consuming blood, fat, and bones to cure oneself of infectious diseases such as tuberculosis was at its height from the 17th century through the 19th century. One such example comes from Sweden in the summer of 1866. An eager crowd had gathered at an execution site hoping to be able to drink the blood of the victims afterwards. Wait, I'm sorry, what year in was this? <laughs> this is 1866. No, that is way too recent for that behavior. <laughs> I know. All of, but all of these examples are from the 1800s or 1900s. What the fuck? So in his book, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires... Author Richard Shug writes that the crowd thought that by drinking the blood of the executed, they would gain immunity to epilepsy, cramp, and other diseases. Quote, It was even observed that a family in the higher ranks of society in a large town had come from some distance to the place of execution for the express purpose of obtaining this talisman, which they were most eager to procure as a remedy for one of their children who had been grievously afflicted. Immediately after the execution, the crowd pressed around the scaffold, and the military guard had great difficulty keeping them off. But no sooner had the troop and the police been withdrawn than men and women rushed forward and scraped the ground with their hands that they might collect some of the bloody earth, 
which they subsequently crammed into their mouths in hopes that they might thus get rid of their disease. What the? No, that's disgusting. And why would that work? What would the logic behind that be? Like, I understand bloodletting because it's like, oh, your blood's infected. So if we get some rid of it, then maybe you'll feel better. Or, you know, like, oh, you're not feeling good. Here's some cocaine. Like, this will make you feel better because it will. (laughs) But I don't understand why would you think that someone who's being executed has like the cure to tuberculosis in their blood. Right. I mean, and we don't know. I was reading through this example in that book that I just quoted and I couldn't figure out like who the victim was or what their crime was. The only thing I can think of is you remember when we talked about the hand of glory and it had to be an executed criminal, but people weren't eating the hand. They were just cutting it off and using it for occult purposes. What about a criminal makes their blood like have some sort of medicinal purposes? Is it the fact that it's a criminal that's making their blood like special or would it just be any dead person's blood you can get? you know, would cure you? Or is it specifically because this person's being executed? I think that's a good question. And I think in most of the stories we've talked about, it seems like it's either the the blood or body of a an innocent child mm-hmm. or on the opposite end of the spectrum it's it seems to be like the blood or body of a criminal right. so i don't know why that is but i do know that they represent two very extreme differences right like maybe we could say a criminal represents an evil part of society even though that is probably a wrong way to think. And then a child represents the most innocent of society, even though that's not always the case. So I don't know. Maybe that is has something to do with it. But rather than cure diseases, consumption of human flesh has, in some cases, brought about new diseases. For example... From 1900 to 2005, the foray people of Papua New Guinea suffered from an epidemic known as Kuru disease. The term Kuru is derived from the foray word Kuria, which means to shake. Symptoms of Kuru include uncontrollable shaking, loss of coordination, and pathological bursts of laughter. Because of this last symptom, it is sometimes known as the laughing sickness. Kuru is extremely rare, incurable, and almost always fatal. It is a disease that attacks the brain. According to Wikipedia, in 1961, Australian medical researcher Michael Alpers conducted an extensive field study among the foray accompanied by anthropologist Shirley Lundenbaum. Their historical research suggested the epidemic may have originated around 1900 from a single individual who lived on the edge of foray territory and who was thought to have spontaneously developed some form of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically just a neurological um, degenerating disease of the brain. And Alpers and Lindenbaum's research conclusively demonstrated that Kuru spread easily and rapidly among the foray people due to their endocannibalistic funeral practices in which relatives consumed the bodies of the deceased to return the life force of the deceased to the hamlet. Corpses and family members were often buried for days, then exhumed once the corpses were infested with maggots, at which point the corpse would be dismembered and served with the maggots as a side dish. If they want to have maggot-infested corpses, uh, they can do that because this is a free world for anyone to be who they want to be. 
Amen. <laughs> Amen, sister. So basically, in this case, there is an instance where a group of people are participating in something called endocannibalism. And in the category of cannibalism, there's a couple different kinds of cannibalism. Endocannibalism is a practice of cannibalism in which one's own locality or community eats their own people. Endocannibalism has also been used to describe the consumption of relics in a mortuary context. So uh, endocannibalism means that you're eating your own people. So in the example that I gave at the beginning of one group of people warring mm-hmm. with another group of people and then they eat the losers, that is not endocannibalism. Right. That's just straight up cannibalism. Endocannibalism is like you're hanging with the homies and then you get a little hungry and then you're like, all right, let's draw straws. And then you're like, oh, looks like I'm going to get eaten tonight, but I'm cool with it because this is my life. Right. So at the beginning, you kind of said that you're okay with cannibalism if it's consensual. In this case, endocannibalism is consensual. Like everyone knows, hey, when I die, someone gets to eat me. To me, it's like the eating part of it isn't, isn't the problem. It's the fact that in order to get eaten, you have to die. So it's like... I'm uncomfortable with death, obviously, so I don't want to die so that someone else can eat me. Does that make sense? And so in my mind, I'm like, are they just eating older people who want to die or people who are just depressed and like this is their way of wanting of going? Or is it literally so accepted that just everyone, normal people are like, hey, have you been eaten yet? And they're like, no, but my friend just got eaten. Uh, yeah, it seems like he really enjoyed it. Cool. Yeah, I think I'm going to get eaten next weekend. Great. Oh, let's do it together. Okay. Yay, we're getting eaten together. You know what I mean? Like, what? Right. Well, I think... <laughs> Uh, so in the first example of cannibalism, it was people who like for real did not want to be eaten. They get murdered. Yeah. Then they're eaten. Like, in a war. Okay. So this example of endocannibalism is like, hey, this person died. Now we're going to eat them. So they're not killing people in order to eat them. Okay. So Kuru disease is pretty devastating. It is caused by um, eating the infected brain of a human, much like mad cow disease is caused by eating an infected cow, right? So now, because Kuru is so rare and is basically has only been studied in relation to this one small tribe in Papua New Guinea, you might think, oh, well, I have no association with Kuru and I have no association with cannibalism. However, in 2003, a publication in Science Magazine put forth the controversial hypothesis that early humans may have extensively practiced cannibalism and the proof is actually in our DNA. Journalist Nicholas Wade wrote about the study for the New York Times in his 2003 article entitled Gene Study Finds Cannibal Pattern. In it, he writes, quote, Deep in the recesses of the human heart, lurking guiltily beneath the threshold of consciousness, there may lie a depraved craving for the forbidden taste of human flesh. The basis for this morbid accusation, made by a team of researchers in London, is a genetic signature found almost worldwide that points to a long history of cannibalism. The signature is one that protects the bearer from infection by prions, proteins that can be transmitted in infected meat and attack the nerve cells of the brain. Prions can be acquired from eating infected animals, as in the case of the mad cow disease that in 1996 spread to people in England, but they spread even more easily through eating infected humans. 
This fact is known from study of the Foray, a tribe in the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea that started to practice ritual cannibalism in, at the end of the 19th century. Dr. D. Carlton Gajusek, who later received a Nobel Prize for his work, noted that the Foray were being devastated by a neurodegenerative disease known as Kuru. He linked it with their practice of eating the brains of their dead in mortuary feasts. When the feasts were banned by Australian authorities in the mid-1950s, the incidence of Kuru declined, and no cases have appeared in anyone born after that time. The foray became of particular interest to researchers studying prion diseases at University College London. In a report today in the journal Science, Dr. Simon Mead, Dr. John Kalinge, and colleagues say that they analyzed DNA from 30 elderly foray women who had participated in many cannibal feasts before they were banned. Many of the survivors of the Kuru epidemic had a particular genetic signature, which was much less common in the younger population, indicating that it conferred substantial protection against the disease. In support of this assumption, none of the patients who have contracted the human version of mad cow disease in Britain carry the protective signature. The researchers then examined DNA from various ethnic groups around the world and found that all but one, the Japanese, carry the protective signature to some degree, and that the Japanese are protected by a different signature in the same gene. Various genetic testing showed that the protective genes could not be there by chance, but were a result of natural selection. This implies that human populations in the past must have been exposed to some form of prion disease, the researchers say. They contend that the prion disease was probably spread by cannibalism. About half of today's English population has the protective signature, which may be one among several reasons why so few people, only 134 in a population of more than 50 million, have ever contracted the human form of mad cow disease. So, my point is that nearly all cultures and people throughout history, regardless of race, religion, or creed, have all practiced human cannibalism at one point or another. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, if we all have this protective signature that was given to us from, you know, natural selection, like everyone who didn't have this protective signature died of this disease, and then only the strong cannibals were left. Exactly. And this this article, when it came out in 2003, was super controversial. There were a lot of people who came out opposed to it and said, no, that's not what this means. This could mean that it, it was, you know, we got this genetic signature from eating animals that were infected. It doesn't mean that we ate humans who were infected. And that's like really fucked up to say that all of our ancestors ate humans. And my response to that is like, why is that fucked up to say? We don't know what people were doing back yeah. then. I mean, maybe maybe every day was like the Donner Party. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, like I'm down with it. Like I said, as long as it's consensual. I still remember your quote from the HMS Terror episode where I asked you if you would ever eat a human and you were like, yeah, I'd do it right now just to see what it tastes like. <laughs> now, Natalia, as you pointed out earlier, the next logical question from all this talk of cannibalism is, well, what does human meat taste like? After all, if so many people throughout history have participated in the consumption of human flesh, organs, fat, brains, and blood, it must taste pretty good, right? Yeah. Well, I did the research so you don't have to, and the NSA isn't going to look through your search history because they're definitely going to be <laughs> looking into mine, and I have compiled a list of personal testimonies regarding what humans taste like. 
So in the where 1920s, did you get these testimonies? <laughs> oh man, I'll read my sources at the end. There were so many different places, and some of them I was like, "Is this a real website, or is this like <laughs> the government trying to catch me looking up what a human tastes like?" <laughs> but in the 1920s. William Seabrook, an author and journalist, obtained samples of human flesh from a hospital in Paris, cooked them up, ate them, and wrote about it. Now, first Was of all, he allowed to do that? I don't know. I doubt it. But also, <laughs> This guy was kind of fucked up because he wrote this book where he wrote about what it about what it's like to eat human flesh. But he was a fucking liar because he tried to say, oh, I went and lived amongst a tribe and I they let me sample some of their meats. And then later when he was questioned about it, because people were like, that doesn't make any sense. He was like, OK, here's what actually happened. I went and found this guy at a hospital in Paris and I just like paid him to give me some samples that he had in a laboratory of human flesh. Oh, my God. I know. So this guy's a psycho. And then he went back to his apartment in Paris and cooked them up and ate them. And then he wrote about what it tasted like. So this is what he said. Quote, it was like good, fully developed veal, not young, but not yet beef. It was very definitely like that. And it was not like any other meat I had ever tasted. It was so nearly like good, fully developed veal that I think no person with a palate of ordinary, normal sensitiveness could distinguish it from veal. It was mild, good meat, with no other sharply defined or highly characteristic tastes such as, for instance, goat, high game, and pork have. The steak was slightly tougher than prime veal, a little bit stringy, but not too tough or stringy to be agreeably edible. The roast, from which I cut and ate a central slice, was tender, and in color, texture, smell, as well as taste, strengthened my certainty that of all the meats we habitually know, veal is the one meat to which this meat is accurately comparable. Ew! <laughs> what the fuck? First of all, I don't, I know there's a lot of people that eat veal. You're gross. I like veal. Yeah, I you're personally gross. like veal. You're personally gross. I like it. Gross. You're gross. <laughs> I know there I know there's like lots of cultures including my own where people eat veal and it's like this sexy thing that you do that's like even more rich than like just getting a piece of steak and I want to say you guys are gross I don't have time to explain it to you like go google it watch a video on veal and tell me you can watch that and not be like okay I'm not gonna eat that anymore all right (laughs) so First of all, okay. the fact all right. that he's... Com- I like veal. Yeah, you're gross. That's fine. It's okay. Leave a comment on the Instagram if you eat veal. Yeah, and you guys are all gross. I Look, look that's, that's all I'm going to say. It's just facts, okay? So <laughs> now this guy is being really gross by comparing human meat to veal. First of all, this is just a gross story. I don't even know like what I can add to this. I told you, it starts off gross, then it gets kind of... <laughs> silly and zany and then it ends up and it's fine okay so like what okay yes please okay now so that is one how did this guy not get arrested i you know your guess is as good as mine (laughs) now this next guy armin mywes was a german computer repair technician and he placed an ad on the internet for quote a young well-built man who wants to be eaten now, Natalia, this actually, you should be fine with this because as you said, consensual. you're chill with it yeah. as long as it's consensual. This sounds well, kind of, man, yeah, this sounds sexual for some reason to me. 
it oh no it was it was sexual and a man answered his ad and agreed to be eaten so he goes over to this guy's apartment and proceeds to be fucking roasted and eaten and all in all my Wes ended up eating around 40 pounds of meat that he cut from this man and after he was caught and like went to prison he gave an interview about it and he said that the meal tasted quote rather like good pork only a bit tougher and a bit more bitter was there was this like how, okay i understand that it was sexual was uh, was there actual sex acts that happened for this or no i think it I think it was like a kink, right. you know, like, oh, my a kink fetish. is to be choked during sex or my kink is to, uh, I don't know, is, is to, to be, be roasted. Tied up. Well, and yeah, in this Rosemary. instance, it was like my kink. Yeah, it was like my kink <laughs> is to eat a man. And then this other man was like, my kink is to be eaten. And they were like, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So, um. I learned from someone, actually she listens to this podcast, one of my good friends once explained the difference between a kink and a fetish to me. And a fetish is something that's non-sexual. Like it could be an object or it could be like an act that's not sexual by nature. It has nothing to do with sexual organs and there's like no sexual pleasure from it. Like the sound of rubber rubbing together, that could be a fetish. And then these people get off on it. So I guess eating someone could be a fetish. I don't know. It could be. But I think in this case, he ate the penis, if I'm not mistaken. There was so would that 40, be a or a fetish 40 that pounds point? of penis. Oh, well, he ate other things okay. besides the penis. Oh, here's our quote from Let's Get Haunted. Um, Let's Get Haunted award winning podcast. And then in quotes, it just said, would eating the penis be a fetish or a kink? <laughs> let us know i in the think it's a kink below. because penis is a sex organ right i don't know you guys weigh in in the comments below because we're lost <laughs> now i have another example another first-hand account of what eating human flesh is like so more evidence for human flesh tasting like pork comes from carl Dunkey, a prussian cannibal who killed 40 people before his arrest in 1924 he butchered his victims, pickled the flesh, and then sold them at a market to unsuspecting buyers. He marketed the meat as pickled pork. When Carl was discovered after one of his victims escaped, the police discovered a medley of human flesh cutlets and bones in his home. According to Wikipedia, a detailed report of what was found included... 16 femurs, of which one pair of remarkably strong ones, two pairs of very thin ones, six pairs and two left femurs, 15 medium-sized pieces of long bones, four pairs of elbow bones, seven heads of radii, nine lower parts of radii, eight lower parts of the elbow, a pair of upper shin bones, a pair of lower elbows and radii, of which extremities still remain well-connected, a pair of upper arms and a pair of upper arm heads, a pair of collarbones, two shoulder blades, eight heels and ankle bones, 120 toes and phalanges, mm. 65 feet and metacarpal bones, five first ribs and 150 pieces of ribs. And I'm going to send you a picture, Natalia, of what was found in his home for you to describe to listeners. Does he just do that to be fucked up? Like, I'm, I'm assuming getting human flesh is a lot more complicated than just getting pork to pickle it, right? 
Right. Well, so we unfortunately never got to hear why he did this or what his rationale was, because as soon as he was arrested, he committed suicide. So they weren't even able to, like, really question him. That's a bummer. You guys, if you do some fucking weird ass shit like that, like, you have to put that in your suicide note. Otherwise, it's even more fucked up that you committed suicide. Like, you can't just leave us all hanging like that. Okay. All right. This is gross. Alyssa's sending me a bunch of black and white photos of just, uh, of random meats. Like, yeah, it looks like someone just took a bunch of random meats and then there's like little bones all laid out. And I'm assuming these are human bones, but it literally, yeah, like vertebrae and stuff laid out here. What are these photos from? This is what they found somewhere. They went to his house. After one of his victims escaped and was like, hey, this dude is like cutting people up and murdering them. They went to his house, arrested him, and then they started going through all of his belongings. And then they laid out all of the stuff that they found and they took pictures of it. Disgusting. Yeah, no, this is gross. I'm just going to go ahead and say this is gross. I don't care if this is your culture. (laughs) Like what I'm looking at looks nasty. Um I'm already a finicky person when it comes to eating meats. Like I was a vegetarian for seven years and during, you know, a year or two of that, I was like a vegan. And because I just, the thought of dead things makes me grossed out. And now this is like really making me grossed out a lot. Right. Well, and also if the issue of consent is important to you, then maybe animal meat grosses you out. Because maybe you think animals can't consent. I eat meat, so I'm not saying that's right or wrong, so nobody get mad. Um, but I'm saying it makes wow. sense, right? Yeah, if I've never thought of it that way, but that probably is exactly what it is. Well, according to allthatsinteresting.com, a man named Issei Sagawa, who is currently roaming Tokyo as a free man, spent two days eating a 25-year-old woman he had killed as a student in Paris. And he's gone on record to note that the buttocks melted on his tongue like raw tuna, quote unquote, and that his favorite meat was the thighs, which he described as, quote, wonderful. However, he also said that he didn't like the breasts because they were too greasy. Also, I just want to reiterate, this man is a free man. And you can watch a YouTube video. He has uh, it was some technicality, but he's roaming Japan free as a bird. I I think he was declared criminally insane or mentally unstable and they just like let him out. But. Um, you can watch, there's a bunch of documentaries and interviews with him on YouTube if you just Google, like, Google his name or search his name. And he talks about it and talks about, he's, like, super calm. He's like, oh, yeah, and then I did this to her, and then I captured her, and then I He straight up murdered, oh, my God, he murdered someone and just got out? That's horrible. I know, it's awful. Another form of cannibalism that is normalized in Western society is consuming the placenta after childbirth, a practice known as placentophagy. And according to TheGuardian.com, to prepare it, you need to remove the umbilical cord and membrane and then treat it in a similar fashion to liver, which according to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall is roughly what the result tastes like. You can chop it up and fry it or mince it to make quite a rich bolognese, quote unquote. And Natalia... Yeah, I had a recent conversation with you where I asked you, hey, are you planning on eating your placenta? And you said, yes. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah. Okay. So I have some couple interesting things I can talk about this. First of all, 
to everyone who's like, why would you do that? Here's the reasons why you would do that. It's been shown that eating your placenta, like you don't, first of all, you don't have to eat it like you would eat a steak. You can have it freeze dried and put into pill form and then you eat that. It helps you recover faster from birth and it also decreases the risk of you having postpartum depression. Now, if you told me I would like if you if you've ever been depressed, then you know that you would literally do anything to get away from it. And so I that's that's what I'm going to do. And apparently that makes you a cannibal. I love how I picked this topic and I'm getting really grossed out right now. <laughs> like why did I do this to myself? <sighs> I think I think I'm interested. I'm now that that I've learned that this is cannibalism that I'm eating my placenta. I don't know. I maybe I've just lived in LA too long because like at at first I thought like whenever I heard of someone eating a placenta you think of Tom Cruise right that's what I thought of. oh he ate his placenta no he ate his wife's placenta (laughs) and I think he talked about it on Oprah and it was like a long time ago and people were really weird out by him and they're like he's a weird guy but now it's like a pretty normal thing to have your placenta like put into pills and eaten it at least in the circles that I go around in but maybe that's what I mean maybe I'm just been in LA for too long so I'm just like yeah like eating your placenta it's just a circle of life bro <laughs> but like everyone else is listening to this and they're like what is wrong with you well but it, it brings up an interesting point that I think we've kind of touched on a couple of times here which is that it's just interesting how maybe like hearing about like oh this person ate someone's brains is like oh that's gross I would never do that but then you're like well but maybe I would eat my placenta yeah. so is it that different I don't know I'm just throwing that out there everyone yeah I mean I think if it's consensual I think it's fine if you if everyone listening hated this first part of the episode I'm so sorry uh, I am hope you I hope you hung in there I am now going to move on <laughs> to a story of Scotland's most famous cannibal Sonny Bean. Wait, we've heard of this guy, Sonny Bean, before, right? Yes, we absolutely have. Yes, we have. So I'm going to tell the story of Sonny Bean. And then, Natalia, afterwards, we can talk about how why we know who Sonny Bean is. Right. But first, for anyone who hasn't heard the story, I am going to recite it to you now. So, according to a popular tabloid publication from the 18th century called the Newgate Calendar... Alexander Sonny Bean was born during the 16th century in East Lothian, a historic county about eight or nine miles east of Edinburgh in Scotland. His mother and father are said to have worked digging ditches and trimming hedges. His father was hopeful that Sonny would take up the family trade, but after giving it a shot, Sonny decided that the life of a hard tradesman was not for him. According to some accounts, Sonny was regularly beaten by his father for not being a good enough son or for not being good at being a laborer. Try as he might, Sonny could never seem to live up to his father's standards. As a young boy, he had trouble paying attention in school and disliked following instructions from authority figures. Naturally, this led to him getting into trouble routinely throughout his adolescence. As Sonny got a little bit older, he gave up trying to make his father proud and embraced his position in the town as a social outcast. Around this time, Sonny met another social outcast in his village, a woman named Agnes Douglas. Agnes had a reputation for being a, quote, vile woman and a witch. (laughs) It is unknown why the townsfolk thought she was a witch, but rumors claiming that she had been involved in conjuring demons using human sacrifice circulated amongst the villagers. 
This idea was so prevalent that rather than call her by her name, Agnes, as a normal person might, the townsfolk took to calling her Black Agnes Douglas, the Dark Witch of Lothian. (laughs) Children would even throw things at her as she walked past and sing songs about her being a witch. Together, Agnes and Sonny decided to marry and run away to escape their small-minded town. Vowing to never do a day of hard labor like his father, Sonny took to robbing in order to provide for his new wife. But adopting the life of a robber meant that the beans couldn't just live amongst the people they were robbing. The two of them stuck out like sore thumbs wherever they went and would surely be found out. With this in mind, the beans chose to set up a home at, at Benane Cave by Bellantrae in Ayrshire, Scotland. And I'm probably pronouncing this wrong. I know we have a lot of Scottish listeners. You can correct me in the SoundCloud comments. Benane Cave consisted of a well-hidden mile-long tunnel with several side passages jutting off to the sides. During high tide, the entrance to the cave was blocked without flooding the cave itself, which made it the ideal home for a pair of robbers since it was not easily accessed by outsiders. Over the next 25 years, Agnes and Sonny Bean lived in that cave leaving only during the cover of night to ambush travelers on the lonely narrow roads that crisscross between villages in the region. At first, Agnes and Sonny would simply ambush and rob the unfortunate travelers, then go into town a few days later to buy food and supplies. However, because the beans had a unique appearance and mannerisms, it soon became too risky to go into town and risk being identified as the bandits who had been robbing carriages in the area. Then Agnes proposed an ingenious idea to her husband. What if they started killing their victims instead of just robbing them? That way they couldn't be identified for the crime since there wouldn't be any witnesses. It was a perfect plan. But what would they do with the bodies? Surely if people started coming across a heap of bodies in one area, they would start to explore the nearby caves and find them out. Well, proposed Agnes, what if we eat them? That way, not only would the beans be stealing money and supplies that the travelers carried, but they could also avoid going into town to buy food. It was truly the perfect plan. So Sonny and Agnes Bean continued living in the Benane Cave, coming out only in the cover of darkness. After the sun set, they would creep to the edges of various rural roads, hiding behind bushes, trees, or boulders. When lone travelers would come along down the road, they would attack with machetes, swords, and daggers, killing all who had the misfortune of entering their domain. Then the beans would loot the carriages and belongings of the deceased and drag the bodies back to their cave, sometimes cutting up the bodies into smaller pieces to make them easier to carry. Once inside the cave, the beans would roast the limbs and meat of the travelers they killed and eat the flesh, tossing the bones to the side. Soon, the inside of their cave was filled floor to ceiling with bones and skulls of their victims. Since the beans were unable to leave their cave during the day, they quickly procreated. Which makes me laugh because it's basically like saying because they had nothing else to do, they were just boning all the time. Yeah. In all, Agnes gave birth to 14 children, 8 sons and 6 daughters. Those 14 children then produced 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters All as in a the product cave? of incest. Oh, yes. God. This brought the total number of members of the Bean Clan of the Bean Clan to 48 inbred monsters. 
Killing soon became a family affair. Late at night, the members of the Bean clan, including the youngest of the bunch, took much delight in hiding by the roadside and ambushing unsuspecting men and women. The family would even butcher their victims together and, of course, eat their victims together. The leftovers were pickled in barrels within the cave, and anything inedible was thrown into the sea, sometimes washing ashore for unsuspecting beachgoers to find. For 25 years, all 48 members lived in the Benain Cave. Oh, my God. According to Alcation.com, quote, The number of missing persons in the area over that 25-year span were said to have been well over a 1,000. The rumors of what was happening went from reasonable possibilities to just plain insane accusations. Little did anyone know at the time just how close the latter was to the truth. One very common story was that local innkeepers had been robbing and killing the missing people. This rumor was so widespread that many of the innkeepers actually left the businesses to move on to new careers out of fear of being lynched. Another rumor claimed that there was some kind of evil beast living in the wilderness areas surrounding the villages. Redcaps are murderous goblin-like creatures from Scottish folklore and were often thought to be the cause of the disappearances. As if that wasn't a strange enough theory, there were many others who claimed it was the deeds of the Kelpie that caused the disappearances of all those people. Natalia, do you know what a Kelpie is? No. What's a Kelpie? Okay, fantastic. So this is a new addition to our cryptid family, and I think you're really going to like it Mm. because it combines a hot person with a horse. Oh, my two favorite things. Right. So now I have your attention. So according to Wikipedia, a Kelpie or water Kelpie is a shape-shifting spirit inhabiting the lakes of Scottish folklore. It is usually described as a black horse-like creature able to adopt human form. Some accounts state that the Kelpie retains its hooves when appearing as a human, leading to its association with the Christian idea of Satan. Almost every sizable body of water in Scotland has an association with a Kelpie story, but the most extensively reported is that of Loch Ness. So Nessie actually is thought to be a Kelpie. (gasps) Nessie's a horse? Nessie is a horse, a shape-shifting horse creature. So Kelpies have the ability to transform themselves into non-equine forms and can take on the outward appearance of human figures. In that guise, they may betray themselves by the presence of water weeds in their hair. In one account, a Kelpie was described as adopting the guise of a wizened old man, continually muttering to himself while sitting on a bridge, stitching a pair of trousers. Believing it to be a Kelpie, a passing local struck it on the head, causing the old man to revert into its equine form and scamper back to its lair in a nearby pond. Other accounts describe the Kelpie when appearing in human form as, quote, a rough, shaggy man who leaps behind a solitary rider, gripping and crushing him, or as tearing apart and devouring humans whole. A folktale tells of a lonely Kelpie that transformed itself into a handsome young man to woo a pretty girl, but the girl recognized the young man as a Kelpie and removed its silver necklace, or its bridle, while he was sleeping. The Kelpie immediately reverted to its equine form, and the girl took it home to her father's farm, where it was put to work for a year as punishment. (laughs) 
Traditionally, Kelpies in their human form are male, but in one of the few stories describing the creature in female form, the Kelpie is described as, quote, a tall woman dressed in green with a withered, meager countenance, ever distorted by a malignant scowl, who overpowered and drowned a man and a boy after she jumped out of a stream. Some Kelpies were said to be equipped with a bridle and sometimes a saddle and appeared invitingly ready to ride. Mm. But if mounted, they would run off and drown their riders. And Natalia, I'm going to send you some artist renditions of Kelpies. I like this. I would ride a Kelpie to my death. Like if if I like got on a Kelpie and they just tried to go drown me in a river, I feel like that would be a good way to go. Oh, yeah, this is sick. Alyssa sent me a bunch of photos that look like a 19-year-old girl drew on her iPad (laughs) of um, (laughs) this first one looks like it literally looks like a giant fish eating a horse, but it's not. It's a horse with the bottom half as a fish, but that's that's the only way I can describe it. Like imagine a giant, imagine a giant bass jumping out of the water and then its mouth is open and there's a horse coming out of its mouth and then just erase the eyes of the fish. That's what it looks like. The second one is just a sexy black horse with red eyes staring at me from on top of a rock and it's beautiful. It's got like white hair. Third one is yeah, another like swamp horse type thing. They definitely look evil. Like they're they've got like glowing eyes. And I would know this was a haunted horse, but I would still try to ride it because it looks cool. (laughs) Um, And then the last photo is just like a beautiful maiden resting on a rock. Uh, She's bare breasted and just has like a white cloth over her um, like bottom half. And she looks very inviting as well. I mean, I would know this bitch was haunted and stay far away from her. (laughs) because you don't see just like beautiful women resting on rocks naked looking off into the distance you know right that doesn't yeah that doesn't happen in real life right the i just thought that was fucking dope that the villagers at the time were like oh this person who is dragging people to their deaths and like all these people who are disappearing in our village they're being eaten by a kelpie because this little path goes by an ocean as we discussed because the cave where the beans are living is this oceanside cave and the entrance is covered up by the high tide the fact that it's more believable to me that there's a kelpie eating people than there is an an inbred family of like 40 something people living in a cave that like eats people and pickles their remains and is just having a great time like cannibalizing yeah. <laughs> and murdering and fucking each other is insane. So how do I know Sonny Bean? Why have I heard that name before? Well, I'm almost done with the story and then I'm going to remind you why you've heard okay. of him before. So as you said, Natalia, now back to our story of Sonny and Agnes Bean and their 48 fucked up incest kids and grandkids. <laughs> so as locals begin to speculate about who or what could be causing the disappearances of so many Scots, they formed search parties and went out at night to search the many winding roads frequented by travelers at the time. However, none of them ever thought to search the nearby sea caves, and so the Bean Incest Army was never located. That is, however, until one day when something finally went wrong. According to historic-uk.com, quote, 
It happened one evening for the Sawney Bean Army, when they attacked a man and his wife as they were returning home from a nearby fair. One group pulled the woman from her horse and had her stripped and disemboweled before the other group had a chance to wrestle the man to the ground. Realizing the fate that was about to fall on him, he fought desperately to escape, driving his horse into and over his attackers. As he fought for his life, a group of 20 or so people, also returning from the fair, happened upon the scene. After a brief and violent exchange, the Sawney Bean army found itself, for the first time ever, at a numerical disadvantage and promptly retreated back to the cave to consider the situation. As they retreated, they left behind the mutilated body of a woman as evidence, and a score of witnesses and one very angry husband. The legend continues that the man was taken to the chief magistrate of Glasgow, who alerted King James I. King James I arrived in Ayrshire with a small army of 400 men, 12 bloodhounds, and a large party of local volunteers. This became the largest manhunt that Scotland has ever seen. Unlike previous searches, which came up empty-handed, the addition of the bloodhounds would lead to a new discovery. The hounds alerted to the smell of human decomposition at the entrance of Benane Cave. By torchlight, the troops entered Benane Cave, and with swords drawn, they proceeded down the, lo- the mile-long, twisting passage to the inner depths of the Sawney Bean family lair. There they were met with a horrific sight. Littered along the dark caves, thick with sea-salt mist, were stacks upon stacks of human arms, legs, torsos, and heads. There were stacks of bones, barrels of pickled feet, and meat hanging from the ceiling like a butcher shop in a bad dream. Besides human remains, there were also piles of stolen goods separated by type. Stacks of wedding rings, watches, boots, and clothing. The victims of the Bean clan are estimated to be anywhere from 1,000 to 4,000 people over a 25-year period. Oh my gosh. After a brief fight, the entire Sawney Bean family... All 48 of them were arrested and marched off to Edinburgh in 1430 AD by the king himself. Their crimes were so heinous that the entire family was sentenced to death. The following day, the 27 men of the family met a fate similar to that of many of their victims by having their legs and arms cut off and being left to slowly bleed to death, watched by their women. The 21 women were then burned like witches in huge fires. And Natalia, there's even a ballad of Sonny Bean, and I am going to send you some lyrics to read to our listeners if you can. That story could be its own episode. That was wild. That is crazy. I I was just like vividly picturing walking down into like a musty, murky, dark cave and, and seeing all of those body parts. And uh, it's not it's not a vibe that I want to go for right now (laughs) okay ballad of sawney bean it says they've hung them high in edinburgh town and likewise other kin and the wind blows cold on their bones and to hell they all have gone i just love the idea of like old ballads i love picturing a guy in a town square just being like playing a a lyre or a lute and just being like They've hung them high in Edinburgh <laughs> town and just like doing a little dance. I wish I would have known about this story when we went to Scotland because then I would have been like pumped and wanted to go see 
where all this took place, you know? Right. Well, I am actually going to send you a video of where this took place. Here you go. I just sent it to you. It is a Facebook video of Benane Cave, which is where Sonny Bean is said to have lived. Okay, I'm watching video. Yeah, it's like a narrow, a really narrow little passage this person is going into with a flashlight. And there's like graffiti and stuff all over the walls. This is the most dramatic music. I'm turning. So it's from a guy who has a blog. It's called Dab Hands Blog. And he posted it to Facebook March 8th, 2020. And it's just a video of him going down into Sonny Bean's lair. Yeah, I mean, this is. Or Benane Cave. This is scary. If you have claustrophobia, I don't think you could watch this video. Because, first of all, kudos to this family for finding this cave and continuing to follow it through. I mean, I guess if you just, like, eat people and have an inbred family you probably aren't scared of anything but this cave is super scary and i can only imagine what it was like to go down there with like candlelight yeah super creepy it's just like really narrow passages yeah it's definitely very claustrophobia inducing i would not want to go down there totally and the story of sonny bean is actually the inspiration for the hills have eyes i was gonna say that's like the hills have eyes in real life like an inbred family that eats people and captures them and stuff. You know, I we have to put an asterisk after this story because although the cave is real and there are records of Sonny Bean dating back to the 18th century, the veracity of this tale cannot and has not ever been able to be verified by historians. Scottish historian Dr. Louise Yaleman weighed in on the story for the BBC, where she posits that this story was most likely invented by the English as a way to look down upon the Scots as being inferior or savage. Mm. The name Sawney itself was at the time often used to describe a Scottish caricature of a barbarian in the same way that one might call a cartoon leprechaun Paddy. And indeed, as we have discussed throughout this episode, different cultures have used this excuse of cannibalism or lied or exaggerated about cannibalism as a way to claim moral superiority over others or to justify committing atrocities such as enslavement over others. And that example, most examples that I'm talking about come from the very beginning of this episode where there were some accounts by um like Italian explorers or Spanish explorers and they're seeing these bones in a person in a, a house of a native person and they're saying oh this must mean that they eat people when in reality part of their burial rites were just keeping the bones of their ancestors mm-hmm. or they see somebody eating someone and they think oh my gosh this is terrible this is awful right. this is cannibalism but in reality it was um, part of their funerary rites or it was part of their war ritual right. or in some cases it was born out of extreme famine where there really wasn't any food to eat so it was something that they had to do right so this story might be true or it could be another example in this case the english one culture trying to claim superior moral superiority over another culture in this case the scots we really don't know but regardless of whether or not the story of alexander sawney bean is true the cave is a real place that tourists still visit today and the edinburgh dungeons have been turned into a tourist attraction where actors tell the story of sawney bean to those who dare enter the Benane Cave is said to be haunted, with tourists often reporting hearing the sound of teeth gnashing and tearing at meat echoing throughout the many chambers. Also, 
I just want to say that while we may never know whether or not there's any truth at all to the story of Sonny Bean, my personal takeaway from this entire episode is that I want to be a water Kelpie for Halloween. (laughs) Because Kelpies are fucking dope. Also, I think it's cool that the Scots have embraced this legend of Sonny Bean and are making money off of it in a tourist spot. And Natalia, you said, why have I heard this story before? It's because when we went to Edinburgh, we went into the Edinburgh dungeons where they put on that play about Sonny Bean. Oh my God. Yeah. That memory. Okay. Yeah. Alyssa, (laughs) when we went to Scotland, we, we went to this like very corny theatrical performance. I think it was like the dungeons or like the tower of something. I don't know what it was called. It was fun. I would do it again, you know. But maybe yeah, it was really fun. I would. I don't mean that I would do it again. But if I had not had the experience and like me from the future went back to me from the past, I would say, hey, do this again because this is enjoyable for one time. Right. right. (laughs) So, yeah, it was really fun. And I also think I always think it's cool when uh, like somebody decides to take a negative thing and turn it into a positive. So if the legend of Sonny Bean was intended to be a negative depiction of Scots, I think it's cool that the Scottish are like, well, fuck you. We're going to turn it into a fucking attraction (laughs) and make a shit ton of money off of it. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) It was really fun. I remember watching that thinking like, is this what I'm supposed to do with my life as like a theater major? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was really, it was really, it was really good. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to read off my sources for this episode, and then I'm going to ask you for your closing thoughts. So sources for this episode come from Wikipedia, an article entitled Sonny Bean, Scotland's Most Famous Cannibal by Ben Johnson, posted to historic-uk.com, an article entitled The Scottish Mass Murderer Alexander Sonny Bean and His Cannibal Clan by D.S. Doobie, posted to allocation.com, an article entitled What Does Human Meat Taste Like by Martin Robbins posted to theguardian.com. An article entitled Balancing Selection at the Prion Protein Gene Consistent with Prehistoric Kuru-like Epidemics published to scienceexpress.org. Also, washington.edu had an article Uh, Also, the New York Times had an article entitled Gene Study Finds Cannibal Pattern by Nicholas Wade. An article entitled What Does Human Taste Like? Noted Cannibals Weigh In by William DeLong posted to allthatsinteresting.com. An article entitled Here Be Cannibals published to heretical.com. And the book Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires written by Richard Shug, which you can buy the ebook of on Google Books for $39.46 if anybody is interested. I purchased it for this episode. So, Natalia, that is my story. I'm thinking of calling this uh, Human Cannibalism and the Legend of Sonny yeah, Bean. Yeah, I think that's perfect. What, what, do you, what is your takeaway from this episode? What is something that stuck out to you? Well, or that you think first is I was like horrified. I, I don't really know what to think of this because like I said, to me, the bad part of cannibalism is the murder part. You know, it's not necessarily like the eating of the flesh. I mean, that's that's a moral and philosophical question that I don't think I can answer. <laughs> I would ha- So I would extend that question out to you in the Haunted Fam. What are your thoughts like, on that's that? How I th- but to also rope it back in to the paranormal and less controversial <laughs> uh, topics. Is the Kelpie your new favorite cryptid? And if not, do you have a new favorite cryptid? Because last time I talked to you, you said... Baba Yaga is your favorite kind of like human animal hybrid, which is considered 
a cryptid? I think it was the thing from the last one where it was like a horse that that uh, the episode we did with dynamic banter. Yeah, I liked that. I like this horse. Great episode. <laughs> Gave me a lot to think about. Thank you. A lot to think about. Yeah, it's definitely a lot. It's a lot of stuff. I, I would also like to hear, we have a lot of really smart people in the Haunted Fam. We have a lot of people that also that work in like mortuary settings. Um, I discovered that after we had our human combustion and cremation episode, a lot of people talking about, yeah, Western culture is so uncomfortable with the idea of death. Does anyone want to weigh in on cannibalism? Anyone who's smarter than us, who maybe has studied it in school, mm-hmm. is there some point that I didn't bring up? Is there anything that you want to add on? Drop it in the SoundCloud comments or on the Instagram at Let's Get Haunted when this photo dump goes live. And thank you, Natalia, for joining me on this journey. Yeah, thank you for putting me through that. Now, I've definitely created some more connections in my brain. There's some more grooves in there after this. there's some new folds yeah there's some some deep folds that i don't want to revisit anytime soon yeah Yeah, just like in spongebob where he opens up all the filing cabinets and they're on fire i feel like this episode needs to be put in a filing cabinet in my brain and set on fire yeah i mean but thank you for that that was definitely very haunted you know it's haunted when i like don't even want to talk about it (laughs) like yeah, I f- yeah. When there's like no commentary to offer, you're just like, "Yep, that that happened." happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, I want to give a quick shout out to a listener oh, who made a mashup yes. of episode sixty four and the Ying Yang Twins Whisper song. <laughs> and in a minute, I'm going to ask Natalia for her sign off, and then we're going to play this song instead of our outro music. Shout out to you slash J underscore MCB on Reddit. They also said that we are welcome to use the mashup in our outro and to shout out their Instagram at echobound underscore music. Mm. That is their music handle for Instagram at echobound underscore music. You are a real one. That shit made me laugh really hard. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Um, Okay. Let me think. BRB, gotta go catch a haunted horse and ride them to my death at a watery grave in Scotland. Hell yeah. Bye. Bye. Treasure is haunted, your honor. This is a treasure story. Whoa. I feel like you're sending me on a quest right now. We have major announcements. Haunted. Major. So major. Are you guys sitting down? Buckle up. Please drop everything you're doing right now. Sit down. Mama, let me whisper in your ear. Tell you something that you might like to hear. I got a Fabergé egg and it looks so soft. Yes. Mind if I hide it and see if you I don't know. Whoa. Russia. Golden eggs. Fabergé egg. Haunted.